You're listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm interviewing Brian Beckin, an Oakland securities lawyer who's on a mission to democratize capital. Welcome to the program, Brian. Thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I heard you speak recently, and you seem to be on a mission to democratize capital. What is the problem that you're trying to solve? The big picture problem that I want to solve is that all the wealth goes to the wealthy. And so when we talk about democratizing capital, it really is about leveling the playing field and allowing everybody to participate in the economy on the same terms as the wealthy. You shouldn't have a system where the wealthy get the really good investment opportunities and the non-wealthy get what's left over. It's not even what's left over. They get virtually no investment opportunities at all under the conventional system that we have. And I will say, it doesn't have to be that way, but that's the way it has evolved in the past few years. So that is the problem you're trying to solve. Yes. So you came out of a kind of a traditional securities lawyer corporate background. What drew you into this new world? Yes. When I finished law school, I went to a law firm, kind of the obligatory path that every law graduate, at least in those days, did. And I worked there for about four or five years. And while the experience was great, I didn't feel like that was really my destiny. And I wasn't sure I could articulate why, but I left and went in-house. So I became in-house attorney at a couple of big companies. I started out in a real estate company, Catalyst Development Corporation, based in San Francisco. And then I went to Sybase, you know, the big software company, thinking that maybe I would find my destiny in the tech world because I thought that was interesting. And I found that While I enjoyed the work, it still wasn't satisfying because at the end of the day, what was I doing but helping rich people get richer? And it didn't feel as though that was why I became an attorney. And I don't mean to delve too deeply into the past, but I originally went to law school because I wanted to figure out how to make the world a better place. And I didn't feel like I was doing that, so I was frustrated. And that's when I decided to just leave that world and go into the nonprofit world. Was that kind of scary to go from, you obviously probably (laughs) took a dip in salary. I took about a 60% cut in pay when I left Sybase. I was making pretty decent money there. And yes, it was very difficult and uh, hard on my family and, you know, hard in a number of ways. But I joined RSF Social Finance, which is a nonprofit finance organization, and I absolutely loved it. I was doing exactly what I had set out to do. And what is it that they were doing that fulfilled well, your mission? Yeah, so so they actually did a number of things. They have a whole philanthropic side, so they, they manage philanthropic money, mostly in donor-advised funds, and they do some fiscal sponsorships and so on. And while that was very interesting, and I love the general idea of moving money to work and do the most good in the world, what really captured my imagination there, or what really inspired me, was their community investment fund. So they had an investment fund that everybody could invest in. And when you say me, everybody, you mean... And by everybody, I mean regardless of economic class. Everybody of any level of wealth can invest in their community investment fund. Now, not necessarily in every state. There was a whole securities compliance project that I launched there and, and managed it until I left several years later. But the idea that everybody can participate on the same terms. There's no special deal for the rich. Everybody's like on a level playing field. 
that inspired me. I was there for about six years and I absolutely loved it. But eventually I wanted to expand beyond just debt-based charitable loan fund, which is what that was. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a wonderful model. I felt that there are things that can be done in that world of democratizing capital that go beyond charitable funds. And so I went to a couple of different finance organizations with the view toward developing crowdfunding. Now this was this was when the term crowdfunding was new, right around 2009-ish. I had just heard the term crowdfunding, although it turns out that crowdfunding is not really new, but the term was new. And so I, I joined a couple of different companies. I was with one for a couple of years, and around 2014, we were getting ready to launch a sort of a peer-to-peer -peer lending platform for real estate. And that's when I discovered the folks at Cutting Edge Capital. And, and I realized that's really where I belong. And that's where you are right now. That's where I am now. So I'm an attorney by training, as, as most of my colleagues are. So primarily, we focus on securities law compliance. Now, that's the big hurdle. When it comes to community capital, the reason it's not more ubiquitous is because, by and large, most people, including most lawyers, even most securities lawyers, think it can't be done. They've never really dug into the securities laws to figure out how to do it. There's just this sort of knee-jerk reaction that, well, that's not what I learned in law school, so it must not be possible. Did you decide to go on a, on this innovative path because you discovered it in your research, that it well, existed already? I'm not going to take credit for discovering it, but I had done the research you know, during my yeah. days both at RSF and, and while I was developing these crowdfunding concepts. I had done some research in how to do intrastate public offerings and how to take advantage of other exemptions in the law. And so when I met my current colleagues, they were doing that kind of work too. So it was a perfect fit. Together, I think we've been able to, to build a stronger sort of legal and theoretical foundation for our work. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. Today, I'm interviewing Oakland securities lawyer, Brian Beckin. You've been doing this for how long? About 12 years. So in that totality of years, what are some of your major challenges? The biggest challenge, again, is this, this perceived idea that it can't be done, that it's illegal, that you, you simply can't do these. You can't offer an investment to non-accredited investors. That's crazy. That's, that's sort of the reaction that you get even from professionals that you run into, from, from CPAs and, and, and other attorneys. So what I'm getting at is the biggest challenge, I think, is really cultural. It's a cultural, it's an educational challenge to, to convey to people that there is much more that can be done than people, even professionals, often realize. You've got to dig into it and discover what's possible. Well, one of the things you said recently was, and it intrigued me, you said, you know, people invest, you know, stockbrokers invest your money and you invest in the Googles or whatever, but you're not really investing in that company. That's right. So, so let's talk about the options that are available in the conventional system to non-accredited investors. If you're non-accredited, you pretty much don't have any kind of private offering that you can invest in. So what do you do? You invest your money in a bank CD or you can open up a brokerage account, whether it's a, you know, a brick-and-mortar brokerage or an online account like E-Trade, and you can invest in the stock market, that is, the publicly traded stock market. 
Now, there's a couple things to say about that. First, let me, let me talk about where your money goes. If you are an investor who wants to see your money deployed in a way that's aligned with your values, let's say you want to see your money actually make an impact, do something good in the world. Let's say you pick a company and you buy stock in that company via your E-Trade account, let's say. Now, what actually happens? What are the mechanics of that transaction? You are buying in what's called the secondary market, which means you're actually buying their stock from other shareholders. You are not buying shares from the company whose stock you're buying. What does that mean? Who gets the money? Who gets the money that you're trying to put into something meaningful? Other shareholders get it. In fact, not one penny of it goes to the company whose stock you're buying. You're only buying from other shareholders. And who always makes a profit, no matter whether you win or lose on the deal? The brokerage firm. It's the, it's <laughs> yeah. the, you know, the financial institutions, the Wall Street firms. They always profit, no matter what. But at the end of the day, have you done anything good with your money? No, you haven't. You might feel good because you're not investing, say, in nuclear power or not investing in whatever it may be that you don't like, weapons, tobacco, or whatever. But the point is, you're not actually doing anything good with your money when you're investing in the secondary market. Now, that's true whether you buy publicly traded shares directly in a brokerage account or whether you go through a socially screened mutual fund, which is what most small investors do with their money. And I don't mean to be critical of mutual funds. I have my money invested in mutual funds. But again, not one penny of your money invested in mutual funds goes to the companies whose stock you are indirectly buying. It all goes to other shareholders and the Wall Street firms take a cut. But the other thing I will say about these options for non-accredited investors. and Maybe you should define. Let's, yeah, let's define that. An accredited investor is one that has a million dollars in assets excluding their primary residence. In other words, a million dollars in investable assets or 200000 in annual income for the past two years and you expect to have the same this year. Or that number is 300000 if you're including your spouse. Now, Estimates vary, but somewhere between 3 and 8 or 10% of Americans or American families qualify as accredited investors. So when an offering is limited to accredited investors only, you are necessarily excluding a vast number of potential investors. It might be argued that, well, those non-accredited investors don't have much money to invest anyway. And the other criticism is they may not have the knowledge that accredited yes. investors... Yes, well, we'll get to that. Okay. But, but let me talk about who has the money. <laughs> it is largely true that inv accredited investors, that is, those with a million or more, have most of the assets. But there is a broad category of what they call the mass affluent. These are folks who have between a quarter of a million and a million dollars in assets. So they are what you might consider affluent. And they have money to invest. But do they have options? No, they don't. They're right. not allowed to invest in anything. And if I say by not allowed to invest in anything, I mean, again, excluding these vehicles of community capital right. that we're, we're advocating for. In the conventional system where you either where you raise capital via private placements until you get big enough to do an IPO, in the conventional system, those, those folks have virtually no ways to invest. Now, let's talk about why is that? The theory behind that sort of what some have called economic apartheid, there is definitely a segregation between, between the options available to the wealthy, that is the accredited investors, and those available to the non-wealthy. It's based on this idea that if 
you are not wealthy, you are presumed to be unsophisticated and unable to protect your own interests. So it's really kind of a proxy for how knowledgeable are you? How experienced are you in matters of investing? Now, the irony of that is it's a very imprecise proxy. For example, a successful entertainer, Britney Spears, is no doubt an accredited investor. But does she have any sophistication to evaluate an investment? Probably not. On the other hand, an economics professor, or sometimes even a securities lawyer, may have all the sophistication you could possibly look for. And is but, not an but accredited. is not actually an accredited investor mm -hmm. and is not allowed to invest in What these is that? Do you have any idea what the pool of unaccredited investment money might be that is currently not being invested? If you consider that the total amount of money invested in the United States is somewhere around $30 trillion, that mass affluent category controls about a quarter of that. So we're talking about maybe 7 to $8 trillion of investable assets by non-accredited investors in America, based on some statistics I've seen. That's pretty amazing. It's a lot of money. What are some of the solutions you've come up with that uh, maybe we don't know about? Well, here's where it gets interesting. As I said before, in the conventional system, a small business First of all, you know, they, they will try to tap out their friends and family to raise money from their friends and family. But once they're ready to go beyond their inner circle, they do a private offering looking for angel investors, venture capital firms, big institutional investors. Those are types of private placement offerings that are available only to accredited investors. And then once they get big enough, then they can do an IPO. So you often hear about these companies doing a Series A round, a Series B round, a Series C. They sometimes go up to D or whatever. It just refers to how many times they go out get and money. try to raise capital again for, to, to fund their expansion or increase, you know, improved operations or whatever it is. And then when they get big enough, they do an IPO. But what all those strategies completely overlook is all the folks who would love to see them succeed and would like to invest if they only had an opportunity. So a company that follows that traditional trajectory is really missing out on their ideal investors. If you find someone who knows how to, how to do that, how to jump through the compliance hoops for that, it's not all that difficult to actually do an offering as a smaller business. And I'm not talking about an IPO. By an IPO, I mean a full-blown SEC registration doing a nationwide offering. It's, a, it's what a company does when they go public, what Facebook did a few years ago and raised several billion dollars. An IPO is a very expensive process. And companies that go public spend a quarter million dollars and up, to sometimes do millions of dollars on compliance costs to do an IPO. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how does a small community scale business raise capital? And it can be a manufacturing company. It can be a restaurant or brewery. It can be whatever, any, something that is of a more community scale. What they can do is actually do a local, small-scale public offering. It's a true public offering, but you're not talking about doing an, an SEC registration at the federal level. You're talking about registering at the state level in a way that is very cost-effective. It's not that expensive to do. This is, again, what most securities lawyers even don't know how to do. Because 
They don't teach this in law school. Now, I took securities law courses in law school, and all this got was just the barest mention, oh, yes, there is. Here's a long list of exemptions that are possible, but here are the two that are important. And they channel you know, the, the student's attention to the very conventional systems, the, you know, the private placements and then the IPO. You have lawyers coming out of law school who have never heard of these structures of community capital, and they go to the big law firms who have never done it, and if, if a client goes to one of these big law firms, they'll be told, no, you can't do that. <laughs> because those folks can't they, think outside the box. Okay, so you have found this innovative idea. Yes. And you brought it to fruition. Yes, our firm has done quite a few of those. Now, again, I, I, I don't want to take credit for inventing it. It was done decades before we do it. Yeah. In fact, this is the way capital was raised for 100 years. But somewhere along the way... And I'm not quite sure when that happened. Perhaps it start, got started in the, in the 60s and 70s. But economic power, financial power became more consolidated. It used to be that people invest in who they know. And there's a, there's a thing that happens when you meet someone face-to-face -face and you look them in the eye, there's some trust that happens. Or if there isn't, you don't invest. But when you have a relationship with someone, they're much less likely to try to screw you over. The thing is, there's our current system the Wall Street-dominated system of centralized power and centralized wealth, it puts a premium on anonymity. Anonymity breeds fraud because you can get away with it. Nobody knows who you are anyway. I'm curious why I can't invest in a fund, let's say a Berkeley fund, that is full of all these businesses that I love and that I buy things from, and I want them to stay in business, and I know they probably need capital now and then, but a fund that I can invest in every year that supports Berkeley. Will it ever be available? <laughs> <laughs> the short answer is no, and yes, if I can do something about it. <laughs> well, so, so here's the issue. Now, when you're raising capital via, via raising investment money, that's a securities offering, you're raising investment, and then turning around and investing in other companies, you now need to contend with the Investment Company Act of 1940. That's a federal law that, put it simply, it regulates mutual funds. And so anybody who's invested in a mutual fund has seen that thick prospectus you get. It's about 50 to 100 pages and lots of fine print, excruciating levels of detail about the fund and how it's managed. Nobody ever reads them. They just sit there. And you sometimes turn to the very back to see what it's actually invested in, but that's about it. The reason they do that is because they are complying with the 1940 Act, the 1940 Investment Company Act, which is it's a very burdensome set of requirements for an investment fund that does what I just described, raising capital via securities offering and then investing in the securities of others. Now, what you're describing, this hypothetical Berkeley fund, is that, but the compliance costs are way, way too expensive for a locally focused fund of, say, just a few million. You can't do this for a fund unless it's of a size of at least 10, 20, 50 million. Most of these funds have, you know, mutual funds have hundreds of millions, even into billions of dollars. The compliance costs are too high for a community investment fund under the 1940. So there's an opportunity here to find an exemption strategy. The 1940 Act, like most laws, have a variety of exemptions. And one of the things that we've been doing lately is identifying those exemption strategies that can work for exactly what you're talking about. You should be able to invest in a, in a Berkeley entrepreneurial fund that helps to launch small businesses here in Berkeley. Why not? 
In fact, there should be one of those in every community across the country. The reason that they aren't more ubiquitous is because nobody's figured out how to navigate through the 1940 Act at that level. So here are some ways to do it. First of so all... So is this your mission to navigate? This is my mission. Now, thank you for asking, because this is, this is actually where we're spending a lot of time, because it's one thing to do a direct public offering, raise community capital for a single company. That actually, as I said before, that's been done many times mm-hmm. since the 80s. That's what my firm does every day. You need to get someone who knows what they're doing, but I will say it's not so daunting that as to discourage anyone from doing it. That's a well-trodden path. Now, when you get into the funds... Now we're getting into some innovative stuff because people have generally not figured out how to do these things. So let me just mention a, a couple of exemption strategies under the 1940 Act. And then we're, we're working on finding some other ones. I've talked to a staffer from a, a well-placed senator who you know, we're hoping will maybe introduce a new law that will create a new strategy that's available. But, but let me talk about the most commonly used strategy by far, and that is the charitable loan fund. So one exemption under the 1940 Act is for 501c3 charities. And that is most commonly used because that makes it easy. You don't have to jump through any hoops. You just have to be and act as a true charitable organization. There are many charitable loan funds like, for example, RSF. What about EDFC? uh, That is actually a really good example. They are a charitable loan fund that operates in Lake and Mendocino counties up in Northern California, and they are doing exactly that. They're raising capital via a direct public offering of debt securities to their community, and then they aggregate that money and, and invest via loans to projects. And so they've, they've done some really great stuff up there. They are a okay. 501c3 charity, yeah. and so that is a great strategy. There are many charitable loan funds. So again, that's the most commonly used exemption strategy under the 1940 Act that allows for community capital. I won't get into a discussion about other strategies that are used by the venture capital firms and the private equity firms that allow, say, up to 250 investors, but they all have to be accredited. I'm not interested in those that are only open to accredited investors. I'm talking about strategies that are available to funds that want to raise capital via a direct public offering that anybody can invest in. Again, it's about community community capital. capital. So another strategy that you can use is real estate. A real estate fund has its own exemption from the 1940 Act, and so you can set up a fund that anybody in your community can invest in, turn around and invest that in perhaps blighted urban properties or rural properties, but revitalize them, improve them, lease them out. Is that charitable as well? It's not charitable. And that's the thing. This is now a for-profit fund I'm talking about that can raise capital from investors who are going to be owners of the fund. They'll invest in stock if it's a corporation. They'll invest in membership if it's an LLC. These investors are getting equity. They're getting a piece of the action. When that fund does well, when it generates profits, those profits can be shared with investors. Now, that's an important distinction from the charitable loan fund because in a charitable loan fund, they are actually forbidden from sharing profits with their investors. They will simply pay interest. Investors can only invest in debt when you're talking about a charitable loan fund. But these for-profit structures, this is where it can get interesting now because you have that upside potential. And this is where you can perhaps leverage the whole capitalist system to bring in more money by offering the prospect of real profit that can you know, stay ahead of inflation. So a, a real estate fund is a great strategy. And then there are some other strategies. And here is where it gets a little bit more challenging, but also potentially more interesting. You can actually have a fund 
that invests in companies and, and takes an investment from equity investors. But now the trick is, is that since there is no exemption specifically for that kind of model, we find another exemption strategy where such a fund is supplemental to another principal line of business. Give me, the, give me okay. a layman's I'll give example. You, yes. Okay. <laughs> let, me, let me back up. The exemption that I'm talking about says that you're not covered by the 1940 Act as long as the investing in securities, that is investment work you're doing in other companies, is not your primary business, but you have some other primary business. Now, how would that actually work in real life? Well, let's say you're operating a co-working space or an incubator or a business accelerator or some other other service providing type of operation. And in the course of doing that work, you think it would be great to also be able to invest in my clients. Well, this allows you to do that. Again, not as your primary business, but as a supplemental business. For example, you've got a, a co-working space. And by the way, I'm, I'm working with a project in Concord, California that's going to do exactly this. So I'm actually describing an, a real project here. They're going to build a co-working space in Concord. And in addition to providing access to various services and providing some educational services, they're going to actually invest in local businesses. And the community will, off, will be offered an opportunity to invest in this collective company that includes both the co-working operation and this other investment portfolio. And when that portfolio throws off profits, those profits will be shared with investors. Wow. So, yeah. We're in the early stages of it. The design has all been mapped out, and, and right now we're raising some capital to... So it's been approved and everything by the state? It has not been approved by the regulator. We haven't submitted it yet. Okay. Uh, but, but we've developed the plan, and right now we're, we're raising some, some initial seed capital to pay for some of the expenses of launching the pilot co-working space and then taking care of some of the, the regulatory expenses for the direct public offering. So that would be something like I described, being able to invest in my yes, town. In most cases, these types of funds will be focused on a local community. That will be sort of the purpose or the mission behind it. But you could also create one that has a broader mission that says we'll invest in biodynamic agriculture or we'll invest in education or will invest in, you know, it can be more conceptually based. I think in most cases, these will have a geographic focus, some metropolitan area. I'm working on one, for example, now that that's going to serve the Philadelphia area. It'll be partly real estate, but partly a kind of business incubator as well. So it'll so be... So this solves the problem of the massive amounts of capital you need for a fund. By diversifying, you can kind of even out the cash flow needs. And it also helps to attract investors who might be interested in something that's locally based, but is in itself kind of diversified. Well, what, what's the future going to bring? The end game is that when we can change the culture so that a typical non-accredited investor who has, say, five or $10,000 in their account ready to invest, the first thing they think about is investing locally before it ever crosses their mind to invest in a Wall Street-traded firm. So, so there's a cultural shift we want to get to. An educational shift. It's an educational shift. We have to, con we have to, we have to share with the world that this is possible. And when that happens... 
wealth will begin to circulate more in the community. Again, I'm talking about the end game. What is it? What's the the final vision? We want to have wealth circulate within communities. In other words, community investors invest in community businesses. Those community businesses are able to grow, hire more local workers, more local employees, and generate more business from the community, generate profits, and then repatriate those profits into the community so you get this cycle of wealth building, and that will help build wealth organically in any community, and that works just as well and in low-income communities. that makes a healthier community as a well. healthier, more resilient, more self-reliant, they won't require or rely as much on infusions of capital from outside. This can really transform communities, particularly some of the more marginalized communities, and empower them. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we want communities to hold and wield and actually exercise the financial power that is inherently theirs. Everybody has financial power, but many people feel marginalized. They don't they don't exercise that power. So we want to empower people. You have a very interesting background. You grew up the son of missionaries. It's and- true. My great-grandfather was a missionary to China. My grandfather was born and raised there. My father was born and raised in China. My parents went to Taiwan after the Communist Revolution. So that's why I was born and raised in Taiwan. And yes. you spent many years there. So you, do you think that growing up in this way informed this idea of the necessity of a healthy community? You know, it's funny that you you ask that because, in a way, I'm kind of an evangelist for community capital. So in that <laughs> sense, I'm fo- following in my ancestors' footsteps, although it's not religiously motivated. Yeah. But I do think it's good to to see how other people live and what they struggle with and what are the the barriers to success. And yes, I think that did help build a sense uh, that community is really what we should be supporting. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Probably go on to my firm's website. So it's www.cuttingedgecapital.com. And there will be ways to, to connect with us. And, uh, and you can, individually. For me and me individually. Will and, you be speaking anywhere? In- well, my partners and I try to go out and speak to whoever is interested in hearing about community capital. I will be giving a talk to the Richmond Chamber of Commerce, I believe, on June 9. Well, Brian, I really want to thank you for being on the program. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, letting me come and join you for a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to Method to the Madness on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes University. We'll be back next Friday at noon.